uh, and that went all the way up from the uh, all the way up to the chief of staff and to the to the secretary of state for, for defense they all knew about it but no one has been held account that was retired RAF officer Jimmy Jones, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello, and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Callum Ross, Rachel Amory, and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. In fact, it's a bit more than that today because it's our last weekly show for a short summer break. MSPs called it a day last night for a nice long recess. They finished with a bang, of course. Nicola Sturgeon's independence announcement earlier this week was a major statement of intent, which we will, of course, get to shortly. We'll also have a look at the highlights and lowlights of the past term, which saw the country emerge from COVID restrictions into another wave of infection. And politicians have been confronted by serious complaints about the state of local services. All of that coming up. But first, it's now 10 years since an RAF tragedy which led to three airmen dying in a tornado fast jet disaster over the Murray Firth. It claimed the lives of Flight Lieutenant Howell Poole, Squadron Leader Sam Bailey and Flight Lieutenant Adam Sanders, while a fourth airman was injured. Callum Ross has been looking back at the events of July the 3rd, 2012 to see if any lessons have been learned in the 10 years since. Before the show, Callum spoke with Jimmy Jones, a retired RAF officer from Murray, who has campaigned for a fatal accident inquiry. He says defence chiefs have never really been held to account, which is something we'll discuss a little later. In the interview, Callum began by asking Mr Jones how the tragic events of July the 3rd unfolded. It involved two tornado aircraft, both from, from RAF Lossiemouth. One aircraft had been out um, on an earlier mission over over the north uh, western Scotland and uh, returned was returning to the the weapons range um, he arrived a little bit earlier so he had to sort of join a holding pattern and and a kind of descended from about six six thousand feet down to one thousand feet and there he entered a um, I think it was a left hand orbit um, and sec- the second aircraft took off from from Lossiemouth. Uh, about 15 minutes earlier. Um, he went in at about 500 feet, and then as he got close to the range, he, he climbed to, sadly, around 1,000 feet. Um, he was in the o- an opposite orbit. He was in, one was in a left-hand orbit, one was in a right-hand orbit, which I often thought was a bit odd. It's not the way you would deal with uh, uh, cars on a, on a, on a roundabout, but that, that's the way it was. And unfortunately, the the two the two aircraft collided. Um, beach aircraft had um, a crew of two, and uh, and three people died. One fortunate uh, occupant survived. Um, why did it happen? Well, it's put down as um, uh, like a compromising situation awareness. And you say, well, what why what is that about? It, it, well, it, it, that was came about because uh, neither aircraft had a collision warning system that had been promised and talked about for about 20 years. You know, I have documentation here that goes back to 1994, 98, where we talked about fitting a collision warning system into the, into the uh, tornado, uh, but it, it, it never happened. Um, and basically, that, that, is, that is what happened. The sad thing is, that you know, you could say, well, the pr- problem was um, 
uh, the, the collision warning system wasn't fitting. That's true. But during this time, the, as far as safety uh, statements were a bit concerned, it was being signed off to say the aircraft was in a safe condition to operate in the environments it was operating on that day. Uh, and that's not, that's not the case. And, and that came out in the service inquiry. Uh, the standard was not achieved. Uh, and technically, the aircraft should have not been flying on a routine, routine missions at the time. Can I just check, Jimmy? I mean, your background was the RAF as well, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, RAF aircraft uh, uh, occasionally, you know, there's there's incidents, there's crashes, there's tragedies. But I mean, how 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 unusual is it for two um, kind of RAF fast jets or, or military fast jets from anywhere to collide like that? Um, uh, it doesn't happen very often, does it? Well, there had there had been co- collisions. Um, if I can read something here now that about uh, this is coming back from 1998. Um, it says here uh, the RAF will have by 2003-2004 a fleet of some 142 Tornado GR4 aircraft, which will remain in the RAF's prime low-level strike attack aircraft until out of service date in 2018. Between 1987 and 1996, there were 19 incidents of mid-air collisions. So, you know, it's, it was happening quite regularly at that time. So this is why it was thought necessary to fit um, a collision warning system to not just Tornado, but to the, to the Hawk aircraft, the Jaguar that was in service at the time. And then we actually look forward to talk about the fitting it to the European, uh, uh, European fighter, which is now known as the Typhoon. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell me about your own kind of involvement? When was it you sort of um, started looking into this and decided to um, get involved? And 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 how did your kind of involvement and campaign kind of develop over over the years? Yeah. Well, I suppose I've I kind of started taking a note of things back with the the, the Nimrod crash in in uh, Afghanistan. And later on, a little bit to do with the opening of the, the uh, Mull of Kintyre incident. And you come to realize that the inquiry reports that come out from MOD are very, very technical. And the general public, and in fact, the families themselves, really need some assistance in understanding uh, what's been said. On top of that, it's a case of not taking the reports as at complete face value, value but... but but scrutinizing what has been said. And it's, that's where it started, to, to scrutinize what had happened. And normally with an accident like this, there is a, a, the service inquiry will be conducted into the cause of the, of the accident. And at the time, they, everyone thought that this would follow the usual pattern of service inquiry followed by an inquest. The service inquiry looks into the cause of the accident. An inquest looks into the is a civil matter looking into the cause of, of death. Now, we don't have inquests in Scotland, but we have a fatal accident inquiry, which is, which is very similar. So everyone was convinced that there would be a fatal accident inquiry. And it transpired that uh, this decided there wouldn't be one. And at this point, I, I, I challenged the, uh, the Crown Office and said, well, look, here's the, here's the Fatal Accident Act for I think it was 1976, what it says where someone dies during the course of their employment or occupation. So, and, and then it should be mandatory. 
which is what, what people were expecting. But they came back very quickly and said, oh, no, 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 the operative word is in the course of the employment. Service people are not employed. They're there in the Crown's, crown's prerogative. And that, that came as a, as a big shock. And that resulted in me giving evidence to the Justice Committee in, at, uh, in, in Scottish Parliament. And I presented, made this point. And again, <laughs> the Justice Committee was shocked. The Minister was shocked. They, they couldn't believe that service people were being treated as, if you like, second-class citizens. And that resulted in the, in the, in the, uh, the Fatal Accident Inquiry Act being modified so it would now bring in service personnel. But that didn't come into effect. It wasn't backdated until 2016. So, because of your campaigns, basically the the law was changed to to make sure that if any kind of um, military person um, died while while at work, there would automatically be a, a fatal accident inquiry, like anyone else who who died at work. The Crown Office's argument in terms of the tornado collision yeah. certainly has always been that an FAI wouldn't have gone further than the the service inquiry by the Military Aviation Authority. Anyway, I mean, why? Why do you disagree with that? Why why do you think an FAI is so necessary, and what what would it what would it uncover? Well, there are two different things. The, the military inquiry dealt with the the cause of the accident. An FAI or on an inquest, these are civil matters with a judge, and and they cover the cause of death. With a, a service inquiry, there is no cross-examination. Uh, there's no families present. They're not represented. With an FEI, they're, they're, they're present, and there's cross-examination. So I think there could be uh, much... My experience from, from the, like the Nimrod inquiry, we could be far more, uh, far more scrutiny with a, an FEI. Do you do you think do you believe that that the Ministry of Defence and and government ministers have been properly held to account over what happened uh, ten years ago? Absolutely, absolutely not. No, not whatsoever. They they knew that these aircraft really needed uh, uh, a collision warning system. Uh, they were signed off to say it's okay to operate as you are, uh, and that went all the way up from the. Uh, all the way up to the chief of staff and to the to the secretary of state for for defence, they all knew about it, but no one has been held account. What this, their argument is, we signed off to say that we know we have a program in place to put it right eventually, and therefore it's safe. I mean, that is like me telling the authorities, I know my car doesn't have a seatbelt fitted, but I intend to do it by the end of the year or next year, and therefore it's safe. I mean, you, you get laughed, laughed at a court. You've taken these arguments to three different Lord Advocates now. Uh, all three have ruled out a fatal accident inquiry. Do you have any hope left that you will ever get the answers you seek? Uh, or do you think we'll still be waiting in 10 years' time when we, when we come to mark the 20th anniversary of this, of this tragedy? Well, well, we'll get, we'll get nothing going through the just keep going back to the, to the Crown Office, although I do keep plugging away and saying to them, I'm, you know, that, uh, look, I think you've misunderstood this. You misunderstood. And in fact, I, we, um, and Douglas Ross and myself, 
after the last paper I submitted, which was an 18-page paper, we're saying, we think this needs some explanation. We'd like to meet with you again. That was turned down and with a simple statement is, it, everything has been reviewed. Um, there's no benefit in meeting again. Finished. Even though there are additional points raised in the, in, in, the, in the paper. So that's what you're up against. And no matter what you put in, that is what you get. Because I firmly believe from day one, when, the, when the, the service inquiry report came out, the Crown Office had decided there would not be an FAI. And no matter what you throw at them, they, they just swat down. And so this, that, that route, I think, is unless the, the current uh, Lord Advocate has a change of, a change of heart, that is out of the question. I think what is needed, perhaps, is a, um, a public inquiry um, like we had for Nimrod, like we had for the, for the, for the Chinook, where, where um, it's, it's, it's taken to the next stage. Now, I, I asked the, um, is it Humza Yusuf some, a couple of years back if we could do that in Scotland. And his, his answer was quite surprising. He said, well, I can't do that. I can't say we're going to because this is a defence issue. And that's, that's, that's not... Um, it's a, it's a defense, it's a defense issue, and that's a reserve matter, which less rests with the MOD and Westminster. The question I then ask, or would ask is, hang on a minute, if this is a defense issue, why are we playing around with inquiries in Scotland for the Lord Advocate? That was retired RAF officer Jimmy Jones on the 10 years since the tornado crash. Calm's with us now. Some strong views from a, a man there who's who's been following this closely. He Sounds like he's just um, walking up against dead ends the whole time. I mean, do you get the sense that um, he's going to keep plugging away and that there could ever be a resolution to this? I definitely think he's going to keep plugging away. I mean, I don't know how many hours he's uh, uh, devoted to Andy over over the years, but he um, um, it would be a, a very large number. Um, he's he's definitely um, dedicated. I think, you know, I think in the. I, I, Put it to him in the question there at the end that that you know three Lord Advocates have now rejected rejected his argument that there should be a fatal accident inquiry. So I mean, it's you, you've got to imagine it. It's um, it's pretty unlikely that that's that's going to be the the way that that this is dealt with if there if it ever is dealt with, uh, especially given the the you know the last Lord Advocate to to rule it out was one that was just appointed last year, Dorothy Bain. So. You can't see can't see the resolution coming that way. I mean, his there's his suggestion there. He he made that it should be now be a public inquiry, um, and the, I, I think there's been discussion before about some kind of potential legal challenge, although that'd be quite expensive. I mean, to be honest, the, the way things are at the moment, it looks unlikely that um, he'll be successful in getting this looked at again. And you've got got to imagine with every year that goes by. Um, it becomes less likely, but you never know. And there's also, you know, mm. there's also the the kind of fact that what you know, what if something like this happened again, um, and people look back and saw that lessons hadn't been learned from 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 the 2012 crash, then you know that 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 might be the time. You know, obviously everyone hopes that wouldn't happen, but maybe it'll end up being look, looked at again because because something else happens uh, and there there are similarities. You, you never know. Yeah. Pretty shocking state of affairs, isn't it? To have to just keep waiting for something to go horribly wrong before anyone 
sits up and does anything. And this is, um, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that and another theme quite soon. I, I think actually, as we go back over the events of the last parliamentary session, but um, he ended on a, a pretty surprising note, I think, where he's like, almost like, why have we been wasting all this time mucking about thinking about a Scottish inquiry when this is a, an MOD thing? What, what are the MOD saying? Well, I mean, uh, the, MO, the MOD have always said that, uh, you know, their, their, their thoughts are with the, the families, obviously, um, especially at this time, the, the kind of um, uh, anniversary. Um, they say that, that safety is their number one priority. Um, you know, obviously, there's been uh, this extensive av- military aviation authority service inquiry. Uh, into into the collision, but you know there there are still <laughs> Jimmy's point that that no one's been held to account. You know that 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 is a, a strong argument because this collision warning system that would have given these air crew um, an extra thirty nine seconds potentially to respond to the fact they were they were so close to each other. I mean that was proposed as far back as nineteen ninety eight. It should have been in the tornadoes um, yeah. before they crashed, but it kept being delayed, and you know. As anyone, has, uh, you know, who's been held to account? As no government ministers um, have been held to account for it. I'm sure the RAF has learned lessons, but um, uh, and this is an ongoing issue to today because you know back back in 2012 or in the aftermath in 2013, 2014. I mean, there are senior RAF figures saying that we need to now look at putting this collision warning system into into the next generation of of fast jets, the typhoons and the the F-35s that would replace um, um, Tornado, but uh, as we've been reporting earlier this week, you know, they're still not, still not been, still not happened 10 years on from the the collision. They're yeah. currently trialling a, a system for Typhoon that might come in next year, but, you know, it doesn't seem like things have, uh, lessons have, have been learned uh, or, or there's been sufficient no. urgency kind of put into it anyway. Right. Let's let's turn our attention to the to the week in politics, or rather the the past term in politics. It really did end with a big development. Indeed, F two back on the table, or or is it? Nicola Sturgeon went as far as setting a date, October the nineteenth next year, while teeing up a big legal showdown at the Supreme Court, the highest in the land, and she laid the groundwork for an unprecedented single issue election on independence, which I am sure everyone is really looking forward to. Justin, is Nicola Sturgeon bluffing here? She's named the date. I think the SNP are going to face a lot of challenges if they want to be able to hold this referendum. We covered this before. Nicola Sturgeon has demanded a referendum quite a lot since the Brexit vote in 2016. She tried to push one through in 2017, but this failed and she eventually backed down. Theresa May stood firm and said it wasn't the right time. What's different this time is the fact that the First Minister has named a date, so there seems to be more intent there. It's not just asking for a referendum, it's essentially demanding one. The issue is, obviously, the First Minister will need to take it to the Supreme Court. Um, Well, that has been referred to the Supreme Court now. So that indicates, obviously, there's going to be a tight legal battle to see whether it happens. And essentially, I suppose, Nicola Sturgeon's threat to fight the next Westminster election as a single-issue election shows she is aware that the court battle might not come out in her favour. So what we could end up with is a situation where the distance rumbles on and rumbles on to another election and it ends up remaining unresolved. Obviously, the Unionist parties remain steadfast against the referendum, so we're certainly maybe closer to a referendum than we have been in the past, but 
I think there's a long way away yeah. until we can see for certain whether we're going I mean, to get one. There, there is actually quite a lot of meat to this plan, more than perhaps a, a lot of observers were, were actually prepared for. Um, I mean, we had the, the the referendum bill was published in, in its draft form. We um, teed up a legal battle. We got the date. We, we have Section 30s and other horrifying bits of jargon to get through, it, which actually takes me to, to Rachel, who's far more clever than me. Can you please explain in the simplest possible terms what the legal point of the legal side of this whole argument is about from section 30s to supreme courts what does it all mean well nicola sturgeon has already written a letter to boris johnson asking for a section 30 order now this order basically um, allows the authority of the parliament in holyrood to be either increased or restricted so that's needed here if we're going to have a referendum legally um, as you said as well the lord advocate has also <coughs> taken the bill to the supreme court that's already happened the court's already got that bill in hand with them and basically the court's going to decide is it a legally competent bill if they say yes then surely the referendum is legal and we can all sort of proceed forward to it but like you said, it seems like the SNP are waiting for the Supreme Court to say, no, you can't do this. This isn't actually legal, in which case we then go for this uh, de facto general uh, referendum at the general election. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, legal ins and outs to all to get through. And I'm sure we'll be here um, a bit more during the summer recess um, as the Supreme Court takes a look at it. Yeah. So in a few weeks time, we might know a bit more about what what's yeah. the next steps, really. There are a few th staging posts along the way. Um Rather neatly for the SNP, Nicholas Sturgeon started this all off the other week in Butte House, which we talked about in a previous episode, um, announcing the first of a paper, a series of papers where she starts to sort of set out again what um, an independent Scottish state might look like. Um, clearly, the the original prospectus under Alex Salmond is is um, is gone. Um, the world's changed a lot since then. Um, and we'll be getting more of those papers through the summer because as we've returned to at length, the, the unanswered questions from currency to pensions and everything else in between, even if they have proposals like, you know, a Scottish currency, sharing the pound, things like that, there still has to be clear in people's minds what it is that they'd be voting for. Um, and the SNP have their conference in October coming up, at which point they will be able to stand on stage and say this time next year, we'll be back to the polls in DRF2, here we go. So um, her supporters, Nicola Sturgeon's supporters, will be delighted. And you can see that the people who'd pulled away and become a bit more agitated are now happier, you know, with the, the, the decisive action that she's taking. But it does seem that if this all flops, we are headed to a general election on pretty crazy terms. I mean, Justin, you, you, you spoke to um, some academics and the, the team spoke to lots of academics after this to try and get to the heart of it. What 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 would it mean to go to a general election on such a single issue um, format, if, if particularly if one side just refuses to engage? Well, Professor James Mitchell from Edinburgh University was talking about this, and he said that essentially there's no such thing as a de facto referendum. An election and referendums are essentially different things. So I suppose from the perspective of the SNP, it's more of a moral argument. Throw independence parties, because that would bring in the Greens, for example, get more than 50% of the vote in Scotland. That gives them a moral mandate to pursue independence. What I think would perhaps be more likely in that case would be that I don't see Labour or the Conservatives saying, right, that's fine, you can be independent now. It may then strengthen their argument to hold a referendum perhaps further down the line. But in terms of what Nicola Sturgeon is saying, you know, the SNP don't have any authority to make this an independence referendum. 
voters will vote on a range of issues. Obviously, I think anyone voting for the SNP at this point has to be aware and probably always has been aware that it's a party that supports independence. It is the main point of the party's existence. But, you know, there's no legal authority for the SNP to say pro-independence parties have won the majority of the vote in Scotland, therefore we can be independent. The Westminster parties or whoever is in government after the next election is perfectly entitled to turn around and say no. Obviously, their concern will just be that the more of the vote that pro-independence parties get, the stronger Nicola Sturgeon's argument will look. Yeah. It's not all been about independence and referendums, of course, um, although that has seemed like it's overshadowed quite a lot of other important topics in this past uh, few months. So it's time for a, maybe a whistle-stop recap, a wee tour around all the, the highs and lows of the past session, which which we should um, not forget. I mean, it, it is quite something to cast your mind back that uh, going into Easter and then coming out of those holidays and into this particular run, we were just emerging from COVID restrictions. Callum, I mean, the, the world's changed again a lot. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of time has passed since we first had a lockdown, but the restrictions are now over. I mean, how has that overshadowed the work of Parliament and how, and what they've actually been able to do? Yeah, I mean, Andy, it's 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 incredible to think that, you know, just, just over a year ago we had an election and, and there were some doubts before that whether the election could go ahead. Um, you know, the, when the Parliament was first sitting, there were all kind of restrictions and even kind of going into... Um, Going into Christmas period, it looked like we were heading for you know this big new Omicron third wave that was gonna gonna result in uh, another long lockdown. Um, but but thankfully um, that didn't materialise certainly to the extent that people um, feared at one stage. But yeah, I mean uh, that's definitely been one of the main features of the last of the last year since the first this first year of this uh, session. Um, has been yeah. has kind of emerging from that almost, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we won't be going back anytime soon. Yeah, um, I mean, there was. I was thinking about other things that have happened, and it's almost like close to forgetting that there was a there was another election in May, the council elections, which occupied everyone's minds for some time. We covered at length, which um, was was really interesting to to get our teeth into. But all of the services that people rely on were really put in you know, sharp relief. I think at that point. You know, it's a constant uh, source of frustration to a lot of people listening to the work of Parliament. How the constitutional fight, you know, has overshadowed a lot. I mean, we've all, we've looked at health, public services, council services, the transport, ferries, trains. I mean, Rachel, what uh, what stands out to you as one of the sort of the the big issues that um, we we've had to really dig into here, and we shouldn't let you know our politicians forget is a big issue. Well, you said trains there. I would say that's one of the biggest issues of the past few months. Um, I mean, the ScotRail did get nationalised um, in April. And I think at that point, there was a lot of hope that it would lower train fares and services would get better. It would be a, a new age for rail travel in Scotland. Um, and was it's, it? It's, it's definitely not been that, has oh, it? Um, yeah, there's been, a, there's been strikes, there's been cancellations, pay disputes. Uh, I think people just on the whole are finding trains to be less and less reliable. I mean, even just myself, for example, I went to see my friend in Aberdeen at the weekend. Now, normally I would get the train. But it was, there was a strike going on, so I had to drive. And obviously that's not in keeping with the government's plan to get more 
people off the road and into public transport. Um, I mean, even yesterday, going to Holyrood, um, my train in the morning got cancelled and we were told that was due to a driver shortage. And then coming back home to Perth, there was no late night trains because we're still working on a reduced timetable because of all the ongoing problems there are at ScotRail. And so that's just my own, (laughs) in one week, my own experiences. And it's not great, is it? And obviously we've had problems with them. Fans getting to and from the Euros playoff at Hamden, uh, people getting to and from big events around the country as well. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to know like who who is to blame here for all of it. I mean, we've looked at this before as well in the past few weeks. Um, I mean, a lot of people want to blame the new transport minister, Jenny Gilruth, um, and she's very much wanting to blame others, particularly Westminster when it comes to the strike action. Um, and that obviously does play in nicely to the SNP's uh, push to get further away from Westminster too. So, it, yeah, that's been a big problem over the past um, while for the government, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it's just as well that the rest of the public transport network is so good. Um, we've got two lovely new ferries sitting there just waiting to sail into the sunset. Justin, you've you've been looking at ferries, another massive headache for the government. Yeah, well, I would argue that this is one of those issues that have very much dominated this parliamentary session. I believe it was earlier this year when we found out that the boats which were supposed to be built in 2018 to serve Scotland's island communities were going to be delayed until 2023 at the earliest. Ever since then, this scandal or fiasco or however you want to describe it has just rumbled on and on. The big talking point for a while was essentially who was responsible for signing that off. The government shifted some blame onto Derek Mackay, who is obviously not around, or certainly not you know, in the, uh, an MSP anymore. It then was revealed that John Swinney had some involvement in that as well, even though he wasn't transport minister. And the kind of argument over who's at fault has just escalated since then. Former Ferguson's boss, Jim McCall, has said that the SNP pushed this through for political purposes. He has called Nicola Sturgeon a liar, despite being a former ally of the First Minister and the SNP. Meanwhile, Seamal, who own the ferries, have blamed management at Ferguson's for shoddy work, essentially. They've said that the work wasn't up to standard, that that has been responsible for delays as well. However, they do agree that the government appeared to just push through this deal. They've admitted that they had reservations. And we've seen revelations this week from Islanders as well that they're unhappy with the ferry services in general. So obviously we're waiting on new boats to come. But even beyond that, there appear to be issues in general and when it comes to transport and the constitutional debate, I think what may concern some people is whether Scotland is in the Union or is independent. I suppose there's a lot of talk around what kind of country you want Scotland to be. And if we want Scotland to be a modern, forward-thinking, forward-looking country with modern technology, we need to be able to serve island communities with ferries. That It's just an absolute essential for these people. And I think while people are sitting looking at who's to blame, whether it's the government, whether it's the people who are building the ships, whether it's someone else, there's just a lot of frustration that the problem is not getting fixed and it's still there. Um, And it's just, it's dominated this session and I doubt it's going to go away next time. I I would encourage anyone interested in all those big issues to have a a wee scan back from our episodes in the past few weeks because there have been plenty of special uh, episodes on all of these subjects um, and a lot more beside. And that's it for this run of the Stushy. Thanks to Callum Ross, Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory, producer Morvin McIntyre, and of course, you for listening. We're off to the Stushy beach up for a short holiday, but we will pop back now and again to pick up the independence debate and everything else as it develops before MSPs come back. And we will return for our next series. 
Until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands, so you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities, so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.